I want to continue this month. This is not a series. In fact, I'd had no intention when we aired last month's, or we, we ministered here last month, Father's Love. A sermon, by the way, that went up today uh, on our website. If, I hope you've had a chance to take a listen. Um, that was a message that was just birthed out of the Holy Spirit speaking to me on the need to reiterate myself that my father loved me. And I don't mean my earthly dad. I don't doubt my earthly dad's love. I don't doubt my earthly mom's love. I was raised in a loving home and a loving environment. And, um, but I was introduced to a God, like many of you were, who was not always pleased, was not always happy with me, and to the point that sometimes he was, he was going to come get me. Get me. I mean, I might, I might suffer. I might be harmed. He might. But it was all because God was good and God was sovereign, and I wasn't. I wasn't good, and maybe I'd screwed up enough that I needed punished and punished severely and maybe even lose my salvation. And that was my, that's putting a very fine point on it, but at the end of the day, that was it. You could, you saved and then not saved. I didn't know where that line was. Uh, and nobody could ever really tell me what the line was, but you knew that uh, you needed to stay ahead of it. We've grown past that. Part of that is just growing up, part of it's just a revelation of God's love that just keeps being reiterated in me and knowing that my father loves me. Part of it was, was getting out of the God mentality and getting into the father mentality. That was really what last month's sermon was about. Just shaking off this idea that God's some distant taskmaster way over in glory land and he's making all these demands. He's asking you to jump through hoops. Instead, make him a father and make him the best father that he could possibly be. What, what would a good father do? And how do we figure that out as we went and looked at what bad fathers do? And Jesus said, you being evil, wouldn't do this, this, and this. So why do you say I do this, this, and this? And in the midst of that, we, that gives us a chance to do personal inventory is to say, I wouldn't treat my kids this way. I wouldn't demand this of them. I'm not a better dad than God is. And so therefore, when we landed at the end of that message, there was a, a and, and hopefully this is what happens, happened, is uh, in me, there was a renewed sense. Dad loves me and, and I'm in him and he's in me, and the Father's love is irrevocable, and the Father's love chases me down. With that in mind, I'm just ready to leave that behind and move on this month, do something else. It's not any kind of series. I don't need a Father's love part two, like you need convinced that he loves you or it didn't work last month. But as I look through the Gospels and start to kind of think, continue to think along those lines of Father, um, I see a trend in the teaching of Jesus in regards to Father. And I see a trend in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to do a little bit of comparison and contrast. And I want to title this God Father. Um, and I put just a dash there. I'm not using the phrase the Godfather, but I'm most certainly using the sound of Godfather and showing you that there's a difference in the God and the Father. But I also kind of want to play off of that idea a little bit because I want to show God as Father, but I don't just want to show God as the best Father or as a better father, I really think that the argument Jesus gives is that God's the only father. We parent kids, we father kids, we mother kids, but Jesus comes to elevate his father to the place where he's the only father left to where all you can really see is him as father. And I use this title. I've noticed Godfather gets bandied about a lot. Of course, it's a famous movies and books and... Um, there's a lot of references to it in pop culture and literature, whatever. But um, a lot of people kind of look at godfathers as a second set of parents. You'll hear people say something like, I'm so-and-so's godfather, godmother. And I, I think the term has turned into, 
I'll take care of your kids if something happens to you and I'll sort of, you know, buy them Christmas gifts and be like a second dad to them in, in their life as they grow up. But the term originated as a phrase meaning your other parents who serve as your spiritual guide. They are your godparents. They are the parents that lead you to God, which is an interesting thing because that seems to be your parents' job. But we sort of let other people that we thought were, that was always the intention, so go find someone more spiritual than you to help God parent your children so that that set of individuals helps show your kids what God is like. I don't have any idea if I'm right on this, but I have a feeling that the etymology of that was because we didn't feel that we could adequately display what God is like and raise good disciplined kids. So you had to send them to their godparents to introduce them to the love of God because mom and dad's not gonna be able to do that. We've got too hard of a job in order to raise them. I don't know if that's the etymology of that, but it's kind of what it seems like it turned into at some point. Uh, so I want to play off of that. God, Father, God as Father, God as the Supreme God, thus being the Supreme Father. Uh, but we are in a want for fathers. And I don't mean we're in a want for people that can parent children. We are in a want for people who provide and protect. And when I say fathers, you could go ahead and call it mothers as too. Because by the way, I don't think that God puts some sort of exclusive thing uh, simply on fatherhood. I, I believe that God shows himself as, as a mother as well. But because the society then into which Jesus came hasn't changed much today, that society was very patriarchal. So at the top of the pyramid of power sat fatherhood. And that fatherhood then sort of filtrates its way down into every system, whether it was government or the church, religion, what have you. And so there's a want, not for a patriarchal society, we already have that. There's a want for a fatherhood um, that loves and embraces. And it's why the need to tell people about father's love has become so crucial because people need some figure in order to receive the love. The, the, their love and their concern and their protection. I think that that's why seeing God as father becomes so crucial because then people have a father, whether they have an earthly father or not. I want to start with what I think out of the blocks looks like a contradiction. And you've heard me do this before. I'll put up a text and then I'll put up another one and go, look, they look opposite. Um, I don't do that to, to undermine your confidence in the scriptures at all. Uh, I think it's actually the opposite. Sometimes I do it to show you that what appear sometimes to be contradictions are, in fact, talking about two different contexts. But when you really get serious at looking at those and you don't just overlook them, because sometimes what we do with them is go, eh, I don't know, I don't understand it. We just move on. That's not the way to get to the bottom of things. When we start to take them serious and we don't just brush them aside, we start to get into the heart of what's really going on in that text. So I want to stack a couple of them up at the beginning here. One from Paul, one from Jesus. Spoiler alert, should never be a shocker that Paul and Jesus sometimes look like they're coming at different angles. Because they are, oftentimes they're coming at the same thing from a different angle, but they're also coming one on one side of the cross and one on the other. And so we want to try to find some, some symmetry between these. Let's start with Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 15, 16. I do not write these things to shame you. But as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, Yet you do not have many fathers in Christ Jesus. I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Now, what I do with this a lot of times is end up with Paul saying, imitate me, which is a little ironic because he just told them one chapter earlier 
don't follow any of us. And then he can't help himself. Now it's like, oh, well, if you're going to follow somebody, follow me. Kind of classic Paul. But I don't want to land there today. That, that's there. Urge you to imitate me. But I, I do want to look at 15. You might have 10,000 instructors, which seems like a seems hyperbole. You know, nobody has 10,000 instructors. This is our first indication that Paul is certainly not trying to lay out some sort of theology. You might have 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers, but I've begotten you, which is another way of saying, I'm your father. If I've begotten you, I'm your dad, right? I have birthed you. I'm your father. So what does Paul really say to the Corinthian church? You got a lot of people teaching you a lot of things. You got them telling you how to do things, how to have church, how, who you are, etc., etc. They're instructors, but they're not your father. An instructor is who you go to school with. Your father is who birthed you. Paul leaves no doubt who he thinks their daddy is. Notice he doesn't point to God; he points to himself. Now, let me ask you this: Do you think that Paul thinks that God's not their father? Well, no, because we know the body of Paul's work, so he most definitely knows that they are his. That, that, that God is their spiritual father. But Paul, without a doubt, declares himself to be their father. Stack that up against this by Jesus in Matthew 23, 9. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Pretty straightforward. Don't call anybody else your father. You already have one. He lives in the realm of the heavenlies. In other words, the father, the only father that deserves the title father is the father you can't see. That's why he says in heaven, not on earth. Now, every one of us have a father, whether you know him or not, whether he's alive or not, you had someone that fathered you and therefore you had an earthly father. So at some point there was someone that you could call your earthly father. And so the question then to me is twofold. One, is Paul contradicting Jesus? Because Paul goes, I'm your father. Jesus said, don't call anybody your father. Puts the Corinthians in a bit of a bind. And then the second thing I think that's important is, does Jesus mean you can't call your dad, dad? Now, I don't want to make a mountain out of two molehills because, you know, what's the matter at the end of the day? It really doesn't, quite frankly, because the reality is, is that we all know we have a dad, whether you're allowed to call him dad or not, you're going to call him something. And dad doesn't like to be called by his first name. So you and him need to work that out. So whether Jesus told you you could or not, that's in your house, that's your, your thing. So don't think that's some sort of spiritually pressing matter. And quite frankly, I don't think Paul's contradicting Jesus. I think that Paul believes he has birthed into the faith the Corinthian people, introduced them to the gospel, and that no one else has. And I think it's Paul's way of saying, if you're going to listen to 10,000 people, let me be the one that you listen to the most because I put something in and I invested something into your life. In Jesus' case, call no man father, definitely comes near in, in verse 9. So we know there's stuff in front of it. 23 is a long chapter. So we know there's stuff after it. We'll dig into the context in a moment. But I don't think this has much to do with calling your dad, dad, and your mom, mom. I think it has to do with something far deeper, something below the surface. And here's why. Because I want to show you a couple of passages in the Gospels where Jesus blatantly leaves out the Father in a story in which he could include the Father. Now, before I do that, I want you to realize that I do realize that Jesus uses dads in stories. The prodigal son is probably the most famous story of a father and his two sons. So it's not as if Jesus doesn't recognize that there are fathers. But Jesus goes to extra special lengths to drop them from certain narratives, and I want to find out why. Let's start here. Mark 3.35. 
Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. There's no mention in this that whoever does the will of God is my father. Now, this one we could probably easily explain away because we'll go, well, God is Jesus' father. So why would anybody else be his father? But he also has an earthly mother and he also has earthly brothers and he also has earthly sisters. And so why does he exclude mother and brother and sister from his life? No mention of father. Okay, that's just one. If that were all we had, it wouldn't be much. But add that to this from the same book, Mark 10, 29. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Okay, now there's a lot of good stuff here because there's a couple of things that get left out and there's one really big thing that gets added in. I don't know if you noticed that. So let's just, I, I had Nola put both of these on the screen at the same time because I wanted to be able to show them to you. So let's take a look first at what it is that you leave when you come to Christ. You leave house, brother, sister, father, mother, wife, children, land. Okay? And you do it for God's sake, for Christ's sake in the Gospels. And in Christ, you get a hundredfold. You get a return. You get a blessing that includes houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. What two do you not get a hundred times over that you got in the first list? You don't get a hundred fathers and you don't get a hundred wives. Interesting. The wives part, we understand. He's not promising. He's promising a covenantal relationship. If you, he says, if you leave some of those things that you've joined yourself to, to come follow me, the promised return is not that you get a hundred covenantal relationships in return. So we can kind of take the wives part, go, well, that makes sense. He's not promising some increased amount of wives in whatever the kingdom come looks like. But the interesting one that he leaves out, because I don't think wives is all that interesting for him to leave out, especially a God who puts the sanction on the covenant of marriage is not going to then come along and go, you know what, in the kingdom though, he's going to have a hundred times that. So we don't have any problem with why he does it, but why does he leave dads out? Because if you look through the list, you give up your house, your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your lands. And then what do you get back? You get a house, a brother, a sister, a mother, children, and lands. The wives, we understand you got to get a hundred wives. But what happened to dad? Why does father fall out of the equation whenever you come into whatever it is you're coming into? Let's let that question hang out there for a moment. Let's throw the other thing in you get that you didn't ask for. You also get this, because I remember when I used to read this text, I thought, you know, all that's well and good. Why do you got to throw in the persecutions part? Why would I sign up knowing that persecutions comes back my way? First of all, we know that this can't be just in the realm of the natural. Otherwise, when you, the disciples come and follow Jesus, whatever they gave up, they're going to get all of this stuff in the natural. They're going to get new houses and they're going to get, for some weird reason, new brothers and new sisters and 
new mothers and new children and new lands. And what we do know is that in the realm of the spirit, we get a hundredfold increase, a brand new family by entering into the, the Christian faith. Um, there was almost a corporate property, almost a corporate possession. And so you ended up with more together than you could ever have by yourself. Sort of Jesus' way of saying, you're going to be more valuable within the community of believers than you ever were by yourself because when you come into the community of believers, you receive the fullness of what the community has to bring to offer. You receive a family. You, you're by yourself. You come follow me. You get the family. What's, what's one of the things you also get? Persecutions. And man, did they. And so you pick up the good, but you also pick up the persecutions, and that's part of it. Okay. Probably all of that's for its own sermon, but for purposes of this, you know, where, you know what we have to deal with is why no father? You get new mothers, you get brothers, you get sisters, you get lands, you get houses, but you don't get a new father. And I think this is the telltale moment. Couple this with what we read in Mark 3. Couple this with Matthew 23, 9, where we call no one father. And we realize that Jesus in this passage and in those subsequent passages is taking earthly fathers and the idea of the patriarchal system of the fathers in the, in the realm of the negative, taking it out. He's not, he certainly doesn't remove fathers from our mentality. We wouldn't have the prodigal son story. We wouldn't have you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? There would be no dads, which would make childbirthing impossible. But there's a system at work in which the fathers mete out the goodness to the children below in which the fathers meet out the disciplines or the punishments, the provisions or the lack thereof to the family below. And it seems to me that it's that system that Jesus is going to work on. And so in that way, call no man father isn't don't call your dad dad, but realize that when you come to Christ, you are removed from the system of this world and you are placed into the system of a new father. Because the system of the world has as its underpinnings a patriarchal system. And that patriarchal system is what you're being released out of, you're being taken away from, and you're being brought into the understanding of your heavenly father. Now, spiritualize it. Listen to Jesus pray in John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, here's Jesus' classic approach to prayer, by the way. He opens with Father. You don't see Jesus call his father God, but one time in the Gospels. And even there, he's just quoting scripture. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right? Every, all the other times, the intimacy is there with him and his father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Let your son also may glorify you, which is what the cross is going to do. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. By the way, let me give you a little time out here on John 17 too. I don't want to, I don't want to cram anything. I don't want to cram any little piece of theology down your throat. Okay, I just, just open your ears and your heart and see where this baby lands, all right? Let's walk through that real slow again. God gave Jesus authority over all flesh. How much of the flesh, how much of flesh on the earth has been given over to Jesus? All flesh, right? 
that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. How much of flesh did God give Jesus? All of it. How many of them receive eternal life as given by Jesus? All of them. Just let that marinate. Just sort of, just, just roll that around in your heart. So whatever has been given to Jesus can receive whatever Jesus has. I think that's pretty awesome. Do with that as you will. And this is eternal life. This is what I want to give them. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's not a place called heaven. We did this in the John series, I know. Eternal life is not a place called heaven. It's not just living after you die. Eternal life is the knowledge of who God is. Who is God? Well, He's the only true God. My question to you is, what's He look like? What's He sound like? What's His quality? Is it possible that the only true God is Father? Which is how Jesus opens the, the prayer. Father, the hour has come. Which leads me to this question. If Jesus declares the Father to be the one true God, and you know He does, John 17, 3, could we also, especially based upon Jesus' lack of fathers elsewhere, particularly in our Mark text, and others, where Jesus drops fathers out of the story, could we then assume that God is the one true Father? John 17 says, God's the one true God. John 17 opens with Jesus calling the one true God Father. Jesus then tells us, don't call people Father. You only have one Father. When you come to me, you give up your natural mom, your natural dad, your natural brothers, your natural sisters, your natural lands, your natural wives. But what you get from me is a brand new set of moms and brothers and sisters and lands and possessions. You don't get a new f- bunch of new fathers. Why? Because maybe the one true God is also the one true father. And maybe the reason our father messages are sort of sometimes falling on deaf ears is because people don't see their, the Father through the lens of what God really is, we mix up what God is as a Father with what we had as a Father and what we saw as a Father. And in that mix-up, maybe we're missing it. So let's go back to don't call anyone a Father. Do not call anyone on earth your Father. There's one your Father. That's the one who's in heaven. Who is the one who's in heaven? Well, I think that's the one true God. That's John 17. Jesus isn't being terribly specific in this moment because those his audience knows the one that's in heaven would be god if you put it with john 17 what we end up with is the one true god is also the one true father but let's look at the context that's nine watch how this starts jesus spoke to the multitudes and he also spoke to his disciples saying the scribes and the pharisees sit in moses's seat therefore whatever they tell you to observe That observe and do, but do not do according to their works. They say, and they do not do. This is an interesting passage for a couple of reasons. First of all, the the scribes and the Pharisees are sort of the the spiritual hierarchy. They are the patriarchal figure at the top of the religious, sort of the Jewish system. If you had this pyramid of Jewish 
hierarchy the scribes and Pharisees are setting at the top. Now, where this story is going as it filters down is it's Jesus saying to his disciples, if you want to be great, you've got to be the least. The opposite message that all of us grew up hearing. Because what we grew up hearing is if you want to be great, you've got to be better than people. <laughs> That's what great means. You're going to be the best athlete. You've got to be faster than the other athletes. You've got to shoot better. You've got to hit harder. You've got to, all the other, you've got to do better. Nobody get, becomes the best by being the worst. That doesn't make any sense. And nobody becomes best by acquiescing to other people and letting them go first. You've got to be the first. You've got to be the top. You've got to be the winner. And I think I said this to you recently. I don't know if it was on our monthly or our weekly, but I think we are hurting in, the, in our culture because we've been inundated with be a winner messages. Be a winner, be a winner, be a winner, be a winner. Until be a winner is the only thing that gives any value. And, that if, and, and what's interesting is you come to Christ and Christ tells you, you got to be like one of these little children if you're going to come follow me, you know. And it's an, interesting, it's an interesting dichotomy to try to watch those two function together. It's also why there's a lot of confusion in Christianity about what it means to follow Jesus, I think. But at the top of that pyramid is the scribes and Pharisees. And what Jesus says of them is they sit in Moses' seat. To sit in Moses' seat makes you the judge over what's going on around you. In fact, Jesus says... Whatever they tell you to observe, that, hey, they're at the top of the ladder. You observe that and you do it, but don't do it the way they do it. They say one thing and they live another. The reality is, is that they, and, and as this story goes on, we watch Jesus begin to sort of unleash the problem with the scribes and Pharisees, and here's that problem. Eight times in Matthew 23, Jesus declares a woe to the leadership that set in Moses. It sounds like this. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to blind guides. He does this over and over eight times in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. These are those who sat in Moses' seat. These have taken on the patriarchal role, replacing the individual relationship with God. What they've done is they've made Israel's relationship dependent on the top of that food chain. And how many of you realize that the old covenant is basically designed in that manner in which there's going to be some form of mediator between God and man that's either going to be the priest or it's going to be the Moses figure. And remember, Israel asked for that in the Old Testament. Because in the, in the Old Testament, the Bible says that God desired to make Israel a nation of priests. And what Israel did was went to Moses and said, no, go tell God we don't want to talk to him. We're scared of God. We'll listen to you. Tell God to talk to you, and then you come talk to us. And Moses takes that to God and goes, hey, God, they don't want it. And God goes, all right, fine. Here, write this down. Boom, boom, here comes the law. Moses comes back down the mountain, and the dependency on the man and the method happens right there at the base of the mountain. The man is Moses and the method's the law. And what happens is Israel basically intertwines her own identity with the man and the method. And out of the man and the method stuff comes natural kings and hierarchical systems and somebody's always above me and I got to answer to another man and I got to go through a system and I've got... And out of that, we develop systems of sacrifice. I got to have something on behalf of myself. I've got to have something bigger than myself. And it always puts us with someone in between us and God. So Jesus comes along and goes, the Pharisees are sitting in Moses' seat. It's as if Moses were still alive today. You still have somebody telling you what to do. 
You still have somebody bossing you around. They've taken on that patriarchal role. You don't have room for an individual relationship because you always have somebody else determining your value, somebody else determining your ability to hear from God. Now, I know we don't think we have this today because we don't have Moses and we don't have the law. And so we go, well, we don't have anybody standing in our way. And yet there are still Christians who go to church and go to camp meeting and go to revival and go to evangelistic outreach to hear a word. And they're not going to hear a word because they've been seeking God and God said, hey, go Thursday night, I'm going to tell you something. They go to hear a word because they don't hear anything else. And so they go to hear a word from someone who's done the work that they don't think they're able to do. I'm not able to hear from God like brother or sister so-and-so. They've put in the time. God's called them. God's anointed them. I'll go hear what they have to say to me and then I'll go do it. I'll just go do it blindly. You know, whatever it is, that I'm told to do, I'm going to go do that. And then we're shocked when there's scandals and problems and heartache in churches and ministries because we've got people just listening to whoever's in the Moses seat. He told me how much to give. He told me what kind of job to get. He even told me who to marry and not marry. Told me when to have kids. Told me to sell my car. Told me to move across town. Told me, to do, told me what kind of Bible to buy. Told me everything I need to know about God. We don't... And because we're so stunted in our prayer lives as believers, because believe me, we are, and we all kind of in, in, intrinsically know it, because we're so stunted in our own prayer lives, it's just a lot easier to just listen to quote-unquote men and women of God and see what God's saying to them. I mean, I don't know how to hear from God. Brother so-and-so seems like he's got it together. So what's he saying? And is it so? It's never been so easy. Just... Oh, got me another sermon. Did you hear what so-and-so said? And just more info poured in, poured in, poured in. And more doesn't equal better. <laughs> Quantity doesn't equal quality. We get hearing a lot, hearing a lot, seeing a lot, hearing nothing, seeing nothing. Stuff that clouds our judgment, keeps us from hearing the voice of the Spirit because we abhor silence. Silence scares us to death. Silence means we've missed something and we're missing out on something. If we've got to sit in a quiet room, we lose our minds. It's one of the curses adherent to instantaneous technologies. It's almost like our dopamine receptor has constantly been triggered by the visual and the audio, audible until the moment that we go silent to be still and know that I am God. We go, we've got time for that. Let's pop in another podcast. Let's just hear what God's saying through so-and-so. And I can't tell you the times lately I've heard the Holy Spirit say, stop listening, stop reading, just shut up, Paul. Like, I'm even having the Holy Spirit start to say, shut up, because I won't hear anything else, you know? Because I think silent might be, you know, hum along or listen to some worship music. And he's just like, no, just shut up. Don't do anything. Just listen. Take other people out of the Moses seat. Because what happens in the Moses seat is somebody's above me. It's natural. I just believe it. And somebody has a word for me that I can't live without. That if I don't get it, I'm going to miss out from God. And we so double down on that, we actually get up and tell people, if you miss church, you're going to miss what God had for you. You're going to miss what God was trying to say to you. As if God can't say it at your house. He just can't find you. He just... He was going to tell you, you didn't come to church. He goes, well, you know, I don't know. I'll just wad that up and throw it away. I had a word for her, but she didn't come to church. She didn't, I'm not going to give her that word. If you're not going to be here. And, and, 
And listen, hey, I'm a big advocate. Go together with God's people. Get in assembly. You, can, you can't imagine the amazing things you learn in assembly. But you know where you learn them? From people and relationships. Not from other people telling you what God told them to tell you. By the way, if you keep hearing from God about other people, it's actually about you, chief. It's got other people's faces on it and other people's names under it. It's you. I had someone ask me recently, I had a, had a former ministry friend call me up and tell me they had a dream about me. And it was scary. And they said it was frightening. And, and they told me that, and, and the guy listed off sins and stuff and goes, you're doing this. And the Holy Spirit told me to tell you this. And you're going to lose your ministry. And, and the guy called me and goes, what do, you, what do you think about that? And I said, I think the dream was for the dreamer. Because the Holy Spirit knows where you sleep. He drops the dream in you because you're the sleeper. He doesn't drop the dream in you so you can tell me. He drops the dream in you for you. And the Bible's replete with this. When God speaks to Pharaoh in Egypt and Joseph comes in and interprets it, Joseph doesn't have the dream. Pharaoh does. The, the dream is not for Joseph. The dream is for Pharaoh. When Joseph has a dream and tells his family about it, he suffers. The dream's for you. It's not for other people. <laughs> my old men shall dream dreams and my young men shall see visions. God knows how to speak into the individual. You know what was so amazing about old men shall dream dreams and young men shall see visions is the fact that people got to have visions and dreams and they weren't priests. That was the power of Pentecost. That was God going from now on, I get to speak to individuals. I don't have to speak to your pastor alone. I don't have to speak to the priest alone. I don't have to speak to the head of your house alone. I don't have to speak to your patriarch. That's Israel. Israel's idea is God speaks to dad. Dad tells the son, son tells the grandson. Wife listens. God comes along at Pentecost and goes, your old men should dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So, whoa, what's happening? Pentecost just knocks it all down. Just takes, takes a big fan and just beats, knocks over all the blocks. And God goes, we're not going to do it that way anymore. Every individual. That's one of the promises of the book of Hebrews in the new covenant is every man shall know the Lord. He, no man shall have any man, need that any man teach him the Lord. Well, that doesn't mean we don't have teachers. It means that I don't have anybody standing in the way of me hearing from God. I have a direct access through the power of the Holy Spirit to who God is. So I told this brother, I said, listen. Don't lose another moment's sleep. If God wants to tell you these things in a dream, God knows where you're sleeping. I said, what your friend doesn't realize is he thinks he has a word for you because he's projecting outward what he refuses to see about himself. This guy called me back like four months later and he goes, oh, by the way, we were just talking. He goes, oh, by the way, remember I, I told you a preacher friend of mine had called me and gave me a dream? I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, the exact same thing that he saw in the dream that he told me was going to happen to me just happened to him in his church, in his life, his marriage, and his ministry. I said, that wasn't God punishing him for giving you the drink. That was God telling him four months ago, there's some stuff you need to pay attention to. But because we think that our words are for other people, we're almost always trying to find someone we can fix 
when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, he doesn't speak to, he doesn't speak to me to fix Eduardo. He speaks to me for me. Now, the word that comes out in the corporate setting goes 20,000 different directions. I can't tell. I never know what people are going to do with a word in a public setting. What I do know is where I, where I quench the spirit in a public setting is when I think my word is for someone in the room and I aim it to them. And every time you, can, you, you quench the spirit, you can feel like you're pouring cold water on what is life. But when you just let it do what it will do, the, the emails, the comments, the messages you get back from people all over the world on sermons, they blow my mind. I get a message back from someone that'll tell me something they heard in a sermon and I'll think, I don't even think I said that. <laughs> I'll go back and listen. And I didn't really say that, but I kind of did, but I did for them. So go, how'd that happen? Because in that corporate word, I wasn't speaking to that individual. We were speaking the word and that individual met the word and then it spoke in their moment. That's why word is so essential. That's why we need messengers. That's why we need ministers. That's why we need pastors. That's why we need evangelists and teachers. Because they spread the gospel. They plant this. They, put the, they water the soil. And then you meet it or you don't. Because not every message that comes out is for you. Right? I mean, that seems common sense. I mean, not every message you've ever heard in your life was relevant for you in the moment. That's why we forget a lot of them. Because they're not all for us. But every now and then, it says something very real and we meet it with an element of our faith and boom, something explodes. So these Pharisees and scribes taking the patriarchal role, I didn't finish this, did I? We appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not the judgment seat of men. My way of saying, in the end, we don't sit in front of the Moses seat, we sit in front of the Jesus seat. And so it's not about who, what people tell me, it's about what I see in Christ. All right, I want to try to land with two more verses and we try to land in the new covenant, all right? Here's our first one. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. The author of Hebrews says this. In that he says a new covenant, I still think covenantal theology is the most under, un, misunderstood and underpreached stuff in the church that would absolutely revolutionize the way most people think about God if you just start preaching the new covenant. If you just preach the new covenant for a while, if you go into a place, this is a tip for pastors out there because I got young pastors that watch. I, get, I hear from me all the time. You know, what should, how do I do this with my church? I want to transition my church into grace. Okay, just hammer away at the new covenant for a while. Just show the difference in an old covenant and new covenant. And then let people figure out which one they live in. And if they need help figuring out which one they live in, here's a good place to start. A new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. So either the old covenant has been vanishing away for 2,000 years in the realm of the Spirit, or this was a time-bound statement. I happen to think this was a time-bound statement built around the fall of the temple. But even if you disagree with that, and you go, well, Hebrews had nothing to do with the fall of the temple. Okay, fine. Then that which is old and ready to vanish away has already been replaced by new covenant for this fact is that God can't be under two covenants at the same time. So the old one, he's out of. The new one, he's in. So get with the program. Like get in the right covenant. Figure out where you need to be. If that's the case and the new covenant is in effect and what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, then we're living in the realm of the new covenant. And if we're living in the realm of the new covenant, then this is true. Hebrews 2.5. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. This looks like an insignificant little verse, 
until you realize that the word angels is the same word in the Greek as messengers, which is oftentimes translated pastors or leaders or teachers. This is, the, the new covenant is not subject to being dispensed by angels. The new covenant is not dispensed by people. The new covenant is not underneath the release of people. It's here whether you preach it or not. It's here whether you release it or not. And you don't have to go to a human being like a gospel Pez dispenser to get your version of grace or favor because this isn't subject to messengers. You're not subject to messengers. The new covenant world in which we live is not made subject to messengers. No one determines our fate and fortune but our Father who art in heaven. That's the opening line of the Lord's Prayer. It's Jesus saying, our Father who's in another dimension in another place. When that dimension begins to invade this place, we will realize that we are not under what we used to be under. And what were we under? Jesus goes, don't call any man Father, because in this new world, you don't have one that isn't named God. Now again, call your earthly father Dad, fine. You know what Jesus means, the same way you know what Paul means. He doesn't think he actually birthed every member of the Corinthian church. But he does believe that he made a big difference in bringing them into the faith. And so when Jesus says, call no man fathers, it's because in this new dimension, that old has passed away and this new is here. No one sits in your Moses seat. God is your father. He is Godfather. He is the spiritual head of who we are. I'm not. Pastor's not. Evangelist is not. Favorite author's not. Your earthly parents are not. Your spouse is not. There's no other person who sits or stands in that place as the mediator between God and man. Paul would say to Timothy, I didn't, give, I didn't put this scripture up, but in, in Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, there is one mediator between God and man. He said, the man Christ Jesus. And again, it takes everybody out, everybody else out of the mediatorial role and just puts Jesus as the Father, He and the Father, right in the driver's seat of who we are. I know this isn't rocket science for you. This is not like high-level theology for this room. You are not shocked. You don't come in here and go, oh, I really thought I was probably supposed to defer to my pastor. But I'm trying to listen to the Spirit in some of these messages and give you who know these things some fresh things to think about while going over material that people come across that aren't familiar with it can find something in there that is revolutionary because there was a time in my own walk and probably in yours where you had a hard time releasing yourself out from under the almost spiritual control of somebody else's voice of somebody else's direction for your life or You've had a hard time releasing yourself out from under what someone said over you. Some sort of prophetic word, something somebody put into your life. And you've actually, sometimes without even knowing it, steered your life towards trying to make those words come true. All the while calling yourself free in Jesus, but never freed away from the sound you hear somebody else's voice. 
So like when you hear God or you think God is speaking to you and it comes to you in the voice of your grandfather or the voice of your pastor or the voice of your favorite preacher, it's time to realize that it's time to kick somebody out of the Moses seat. You don't stand in front of the judgment seat of someone else. Hear from him. How, how do I know I'm doing this? Well, we start with practicing this. And, and the most practical thing I'm learning is, is there are some things you have to turn off. Okay, there's some things you just have to turn away from. It's like, I can't let that be my input because I'm starting to filter what I think of other things through so-and-so's voice. When I hear a topic, I think, what would so-and-so think about that? And that's one of my first indications that I've got someone sitting in the Moses seat because so-and-so has determined what I think about that theologically, what I think about that spiritually, what I think about that politically, what I think about that socially. Oh, I got to go over here and listen to so-and-so, see what he's got to say about this. And I, and I realize there's value in hearing other opinions. And I realize there's value in hearing people who have studied fields and whatever. But don't put anybody in Moses' seat. We aren't going to stand in the final day in front of Father Moses. We are going to stand in the judgment seat of Christ. And the one true God who gives eternal life is the one true Father. And whether all of us in here know this, and we do, I think we do. Glean something out of there that's valuable to you in that maybe there's something in that word that sent a flag up the flagpole and went, mm, I got to pay attention to that. Maybe I'm listening to another voice a little too much. But for some who this is the first time you've ever thought about this, first time you've ever seen this, go to God and begin to see him and address him as your father and then listen to him as a father and that's going to take some healing in some of your souls because you didn't have a great relationship with your dad or you didn't have a great relationship with your father or you've always filtered all that onto God and ask for healing. This is, we're, just not, we're not in some intellectual enterprise in Christianity where really what we're trying to do is outsmart the world or outsmart the devil. This is true spiritual reformation. There is a formation that happens, as you said, at the feet of the father. So father, a lot of voices, a lot of stuff, got a lot of past bringing it to you. Teach spiritual formation in me. If transformation is real, then I want that to start to happen in me. If transformation about the way I think of God is real, then I want, to start, I want that to start to happen in the way I think and the way I feel. I'm, I'm wearied at trying to be intellectual in my walk with God. It's wearying. It's tiring to try to figure things out. You can't figure everything out. Some things all we do is just go to Him and go, you got to transform me. you got to change me. You've got to move upon me. you got to teach me. That's the transformative. That's the spiritual side of what we're talking about. God's our father. Earthly people are our dads. Earthly people are our father. That's fine. Call them dad. Call them father. Whatever you want to do. But don't put anybody else in the Moses seat. Don't put anybody else in the seat that determines where you go with your life. And when it's happening, take it to the father. Let's start over. It's never too late. It's never too late to turn. When you start to realize that your, your voice is honed in on the Moses seat. That something else is standing between you and where you need to be in the realm of the Spirit. It's never too late to take a sharp turn. Say, Father, I lost some time. That's okay. You're timeless. It's why Paul said, redeem the time. Because God can buy back what we've lost. Redeem the time. Accelerate this journey into your will and in your space. Right? God doesn't have a clock. We're time-bound. God's not time-bound. We freak out about that stuff. God doesn't. Right? Father, thank you. What a time. You are my God, but you are really my Father. Father, teach me all the areas where Paul White has let somebody else 
maneuver into the seat that I have started to look to as some sort of signpost for what I'm supposed to do spiritually. Or I have started to replace the voice of the Spirit with the voice of that, maybe that minister, maybe that author, maybe that sound, maybe that song, maybe that doctrine, maybe that theology, maybe that mindset, maybe even the ghost of my past is still screaming something at me. Father, teach me that I call no man my Father in the way that I call God my Father, that you are the true God Father of my soul. Help me to see that. Help me to grow into that. And everyone who watches and listens to this, Father, may we have a, not some intellectual enterprise into figuring out who the Father is. Let's have a transformation. Just do this more. Do this the way you do this through the realm of the Spirit that manifests in who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.